I first met Josh back first of October. I was taking a large tour bus group of visitors from the south to see what was happening in Boston. And we pulled up, and Josh was across the street. I'd never met him before. And walked across to introduce myself so I could introduce him to the people that were on our tour bus. And from that point on, there was just something that said, you know, I want to know, I want to be a part of what God is doing. And Gail and I both have found ourselves being drawn to Charles River Church. It was the first church that we visited back last fall when we took on this whole new row. And just to be able to be with you, uh, you again this morning is a real, real privilege, real honor. I'm looking forward to sharing some things with you that God has put on my heart that hopefully will put on your heart and make a huge difference somewhere along the way. Now, I want to just draw, jump right into where we're going to be headed this morning. Uh, we're going to set aside the Luke series because of uh, Josh just felt like it would be best to hold off till he got back next week. But the tr- truth of the matter is, most all of us in this room, I can't imagine hardly anybody even not in this room, that he, that's not a, a believer or a Christ follower. Most everybody believes in prayer in one form or another. Most everybody, I can't imagine over my span of ministry, oh, maybe two or three times when I've said to somebody, can I pray for you? They said, no, no thanks. Most everybody is, hey, if, you know, I'm not for sure about the, this, this whole prayer thing, but go ahead, toss one up for me. But I want to follow up with that with another thought. It's not that we don't believe in prayer. I think the bigger question that we have in our mind, and it's one that Gail and I were even talking about this week, and that's the impact of prayer. How difference-making is prayer in reality? And that is something that just kind of bounces around in our mind from time to time. Uh, I think a lot of, uh, there's a lot of frustration sometimes. I think there's a lot of confusion I think there, there's this sense of, maybe I just don't know how to do this. Uh, and so a lot of times when somebody talks about prayer, we usually talk about the how-tos, as if there is some kind of secret code or combination. If we could kind of get this all together right with the right syntax and the tone and the length and all of that together, somehow or another, we'll be able to move into this whole vista of prayer like we've never known before. So I think it's one of those big questions that kind of lingers on our mind, and it's not just unique to us. I think of the disciples. One day Jesus was praying, and after he prays, the disciples who had kind of grown up in a tradition of prayer, praying the Psalms, they'd been taught that as good Jewish boys, went over to him and said, we were listening to you pray, and what you just did, we've never done. Can you show us how to do it? And they were just wrapped up in that moment of what Jesus was doing. Because they just didn't feel like they had it right. And I think there's a lot of times, we, we're just not for sure. We have this whole thing about prayer right. Now, I don't think I'm going out on a limb, what I'm about to say. So lean in a little bit closer. The truth of the matter is, most people have given up on prayer. Most Christ followers have. And it's not that you stop praying, you still pray. It's not that you have stopped believing in prayer, you still believe in prayer. There's still the fervency when you pray. There's still the frequency of your prayers. 
It's not that your prayers are inadequate somehow or another. They're just not somehow or another, you know, right. But what I mean by that is you don't question God's capacity to respond to your prayers. But you've given up on any sense of anticipation that he will respond. And there's not a question of his capacity There's this deep inner sense that says, I just wonder if God's really going to respond to this. And over time, the ebb and flow of life, we begin to give up that sense of anticipation. We go on and pray. We continue to offer up fervent, heartfelt prayers. But deep down in our heart, we don't pray as if our life depended on it. We just don't do that. I think of oftentimes of our prayers, if you've been on one of those very important conversations, you're on your cell phone, you're calling somebody, and then all of a sudden there's that horrible pause and you know it's a dropped call, and you're like, not now, this is too important. And I think there's sometimes when we pray, we're we're just pouring out our heart, and it's almost like there's a dropped call on the other end. Now Now's a good time to pause and raise a couple of questions to make this even more relevant to where you are right now. What is right now in your present day, right now world, the most insurmountable situation and challenge that you are currently facing? What's the most insurmountable situation, circumstance that you're facing right now? Think about it for just a moment. What is it? And then beyond that, Ask this question that follows up in a very sequential way. How confident are you that God will respond in prayer that you've been praying about that particular situation that's so insurmountable that you think that will change the outcome? Now put that together for just a moment. Because you see, that's a real world challenge. You know, we pray and we pray and we pray and, and we, we keep waiting and waiting. Nothing happens. In fact, have you ever had this happen? You pray and you pray and you pray and things actually get worse. You've had that happen? And you're living with these impossible situations. I don't know what your impossible, insurmountable situation is this morning. I don't know you. I know the impossible situations I'm dealing with. Uh, A couple that's been married for 10 plus years and you're sitting down with them. They've got three lovely kids. They're both quote unquote Christ followers. They're they're going to church. They're attending. They're doing all this. But their marriage is only one word for it. It's broken. And one spouse wants to do something about it. The other spouse doesn't want to do something about it. And that particular spouse is praying and praying and she's just made up her commitment. She's going to stay in the marriage. And it just seems like nothing's happening. This has been going on for years now. It was almost broken from the first day. There are individuals here, I think of this last week, I, I heard of, of a string of suicides at Newton North High School. One of the most prominent high schools in all of our city last fall. Four suicides among high school students And you look at situations like that and it causes you to think about people who are parents right now who are looking at their kids and they're going, 
this is not what I had in mind for my kids. I didn't expect it to be like this. And they're stuck in a situation. Maybe you find yourself relationally in a situation right now that is so confusing. You want to kind of move through this and you're, you're just not for sure how to make your way through the situation. It seems so insurmountable. And you're stuck and you're praying about it and praying about it and praying about it. Nothing, nothing is happening. Financially, student loans, uh, just trying to figure out what's next for you. Big picture. You get the idea, don't you? What's your insurmountable situation? Where are you so stuck right now? You just can't seem to push your way through. And even as you pray, you're doing it. You believe in prayer, but you're just not for sure. There's no sense of anticipation. And you're just not for sure there's ever going to be any big difference. Uh, Prayer life for me is something that I've had to learn over the years. One of the most teaching moments changing, life-altering moments for me was in 1995. It was just in the few years after totalitarianism had fallen in in a communist Soviet Union. And I'd invited to be a part of a group of professors that would go from as an extension of Southern Seminary to the newly minted seminary there in the innermost part of the city of Moscow. So we traveled over there, and, and as we gathered in this very dull, gray-looking-like building tenement apartment where we would kind of huddle in our little living space, and then we'd get together and we'd teach something like 30 or 40 young men who had traveled some by like 40 hours on a train just to get there. They, of course, didn't understand me. I had a translator, but late in the evening one night, they said, would you come up to our, our living quarters? And they lived on a different floor than where we were. And went into a dimly lit room. And that night, I experienced something that just really helped me to understand something about prayer. Even though I did not understand a word that they were saying, there was something about their prayers that was different. And as I was listening to the prayers later on, I asked my translator, I said, what were they praying? What were they saying? And they said over and over again. I said, there was one phrase that just kept coming up. And he said, they were praying over and over again. God, your will be done. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. And they were praying it in so many different ways. And they were using scripture in their prayer as they would pray. And that night I learned something about prayer. And I want to pass that on to you this morning. Something that I think will get you off the being stuck when it comes to prayer. What I learned that night as I was listening to them, a lot of times when we give a definition for prayer, what's the common definition that you hear sometimes that we use? We will talk about, oh, prayer is just talking to God. It's a conversation with God, and that's helpful, but it's not complete. What I learned that night about prayer and what I'd pass on to you this morning is that prayer, and like the way that Josh Harris puts it this way, prayer is the overflow of a desperate and fully surrendered heart. Prayer is the overflow of a desperate and fully surrendered heart. It's where you cry out to God in a way that, 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 that is so not just words and not just, you, you know, bringing... Have you ever noticed this about your prayers? I've noticed this about mine. Usually when I go to God with prayer, I've already got the answer that I think He should give me in mind because it's versed in my prayer. We tell God how we think he should answer our prayers by the very prayers we pray. 
And so I want to introduce you to a different way, a different perspective that hopefully will be helpful to you. I want to introduce you to a life-altering prayer that's just an example of many that you can find throughout the Bible that will shape and fuel your prayer life. And it's so vital, so vital to all of us. So for that reason, I'm going to invite you to jump in, and we're going to dig down deep into a a text that was actually penned by a man who began, you know, his whole life was spent for many years being a Christ hater. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and he became one of the most extraordinary people who've ever been on the planet, perhaps the best Christian, the most revolutionary Christian. His name was Paul. And one of the places that he went making Christ known was a city that was very much like Boston in the sense that it was a very affluent culture center of that world, and that was Ephesus. And he would write back to this fledgling community of Christ followers, small and minority, and he would talk to them, and in this letter that he gave them, he encased some prayers. And I want us to look at one of those prayers. It's a life-altering prayer, all right? So if you want to look up on the screen and follow along, it's found in Ephesians, this little letter, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses 15 through, uh, 15 through 23. Just uh, this prayer is encased right there, all right? So let's just jump right in. You can follow along. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, he starts off by saying, and I think this is so important for us to kind of grab, for this reason, in light of who you are. All of the verses prior to that, you know what they were basically saying? Here's who you are. If you are in Christ, and that's a beautiful phrase that he used to describe someone who was a Christ follower. If you are in Christ, here's what you have. You have rights and privileges. You have access to God himself. You have all this total forgiveness, and now you have rights and privileges where you can come before God. You're accepted. He looked upon you as family. You can just come before him for this reason. And every time I hear about you, every time I hear about you, I just want to thank God for you. Isn't it a cool thing to have somebody think, tell you, every time I think about you, I just thank God for you. I can't thank God enough for you. Now, there's some people that you think about, you go, that's not exactly what I think when I think about that person. There are some people when you think about them, you think, God, they are so terribly draining. Would you pass them on to somebody else and not to me? We want life-giving people in our lives. And what he's saying here is, wow, these people, when I think about them, I just can't thank God enough for you. And there's a little hint here about the best prayers that can be prayed are always other-centered. Always other-centered. They're not just about my needs and my wants and give me this and give me that. And have you ever noticed something... (laughs) And this is one of the frustrating things about prayer. Have you ever noticed you'll be in one of those situations, you're just praying like crazy and nothing is happening, there's no response to it, and then somebody comes up to you and it looks like they have this wrinkle-free life and they tell you about a prayer that's been answered. They said, God answered this amazing prayer for me. And you're like, okay, well, tell me about it. And they'll say, the other day, I lost my keys. And then they begin to tell you how that God helped them to find their keys and you're over here and you've got this major life situation going on in your life and there's no answer. Just to be real honest, don't you want to go over to that person and you want to choke them when you say, that's an amazing answer to prayer? You found your keys? You got a parking place? My life is falling apart over here. I can't hear from God. And you find a parking place? 
You see what I'm talking about? The, the challenges with prayer. And he's saying that prayer at its best is not about my needs, my wants, finding my keys, finding a parking place. It's always at best when we think about others and while we're thinking about them, we can't thank God enough for them and we just pray for them and over and over again. And that's, that's the focus of our prayers. But then he goes further here. And this is the part that we just want to dig into. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking, and here he gets into what he says is at the core of this prayer. And this is so uh, incredible. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, and anytime you see the word glory, and I know that's a, a very important word for us as Christ followers, think of God's shining greatness, his beauty on display. And every time I think about God being fully displayed, his shining greatness, may you, may, may he give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Here's the core of his prayer. So that you may know him better. This is the life-altering prayer. What is the core of this prayer? That you may know him better. I'm praying that you're going to have an experience and an understanding of who Jesus is in such a way that it will give you an understanding of him to the fullest extent. Not just in a peripheral, general, superficial, but in the most intentional way that you could possibly imagine. Understand Jesus. Now watch that. Here's your prayer. What is your prayer? Life-altering prayer. Other-centered, God-centered. I'm praying that you would know Jesus to the fullest extent that you can possibly know him. Why is that so important? Because I think a lot of times when it comes to our relationship and our prayer life, a lot of times it's more transactional than it is relational. Yesterday we had made a quick trip up to Concord, New Hampshire to spend a, some time with a young couple who was in our community group up there. They were going through a major life decision. And as we were walking on Main Street, I passed Bagel Works. Bagel Works was a, one of my favorite places in the mornings. I would go over there, I'd get in the line, and I would go through, and they knew who I was, and they would say, yeah, we know, super cinnamon. Yep, that's it. And then I'd get my beverage, and I'd sit down, and usually during the winter it was hot apple cider, and we would sit, and we would play. I mean, I would sit there and enjoy, and I would do a little bit of studying along the way. But wouldn't it be crazy if as I'm going through the line one day that I look over across the way to the guys who are serving me, and I say, I've got a real dilemma in my life. I would... I, I need some help. Could you give me some guidance? I'm trying to make a decision. So could you guys give me some direction in my life? They're on the other side of the bagel stand, and they're looking at me like, hey, this is bagel works. You order, you pay, you leave. Doesn't make sense. Because why? That's transactional. I'm ordering, they serve, I leave. But when Gail says something to me, like she did this morning. My wife, who's here this morning, she said to me, is there any way that I can help you? And she says that often. It's not a transaction. She's wanting to know, because she knows me, what's going on in the deepest part of me? What's happening in my life? Is there anything that I can do to help you? That's relational. 
So many times when we get into a prayer life, it's so transactional. It's like we're going through bagel works and we're, we're ordering up a super cinnamon. When in fact it should be personal. When God, because we know him so well, there's this intimacy there to where we're in sync with him and he delves into our heart and we know him to such a degree that it changes the entire dynamic of our prayer life. I want to know what's in your heart, to know him better. Now, as he moves into this, he makes three specific prayer requests. And these are, this is a life-altering prayer, to know him better and hear in three specific ways. Let's look at them very quickly. He says, I want you, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. How many of you began 2015 with kind of some real hopes this year? I just hope some shifts take place, some major change, hoping this works out this way, right? We use that word hope all the time. How many of you bumped into somebody who recently is just, you know, they're coughing up a lung, they're, they're not feeling good, and you say to them something like this, I hope you get the feeling better, meaning stay an arm's length away from me, and I hope you get better. I mean, you're not offering anything there's no Z-pack in that. There's no help whatsoever. It's just a generic, I hope you get to feeling better. Or another one is kind of like this. I sure hope things work out. And just exactly what does that mean? It means after you've spent some time with a person over coughing, you've been spilling out your guts, and at the very end of it, they go, you know what, I hope things work out really well for you. Meaning... Nothing. And that's a soft pillow hope. And it's cheap grace. We're not talking about that kind of hope here. The kind of hope he's talking about here is uh, the hope to which you have been called. This isn't the kind of hope that we're having right now. It's spring Training for the Boston Red Sox. How many of you hope the Boston Red Sox will win the World Series this next year? Okay, not that many. That's not good. (laughs) Not that kind of hope. What he's saying is, your hope is tied to something far deeper than that. It's tied to the very purposes and plans, the sovereignty, the providence, the compassion of God at work on your behalf. He doesn't want us to ever forget that. He wants us to realize that even though it doesn't look like right now, no matter how many times you mess up, no matter how many times you fall down, no how many times certain things get a grip on your life and seem to want to destroy and take you in a different direction than what God has in mind for your life, and we have those issues in our life, no matter, God's plan for your life has not been altered. He hasn't given up on you. God's not against you. God is not apathetic towards you. God is not absent from you. God will not abandon you. It's anchored. I want you to know that hope. I want you to know that. Tim Keller gives a beautiful illustration, and I think it makes the point very clearly. Two guys are, are hard to carry out the same kind of task. It's, it's not a very good task. It's a, pretty much of a grind. You have to work six days a week. There's no vacation for 12 months. One of the individuals gets paid $12,000, The other individual is promised $200,000 for the same job over the same period of time. 
Which one of the two is going to be more motivated? It's going to be the person who what? The $200,000. We live like we're only going to get $12,000. He is saying to us, I want you to know the hope of your calling. God's purpose and plan for your life will not be altered. No matter how many mess-ups, no matter how detours, no matter how many times you fall down and slip, no matter how many times you mess up along the way, our circumstances seem to belie his promises towards you. He's a sovereign God. He's always working somewhere, some way, behind the scenes, on your behalf, for you. I want you to know that. Do you know what a difference that would make in your life? Let me put it in a sentence. I would pray that you would know that God's plan for your life is not up for grabs. It's not up for grabs. That you would live with that hope on a regular basis every single day. Every single day of your life. Well, let's go a bit further. Look at the second request. I pray that you might know the riches, and this is a mouthful, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. The riches of His glorious inheritance of His holy people. What in the world does that mean? It sounds like to me, if you begin to dig into it a little bit deeper, what he's actually saying is, I want you to realize something that you probably don't realize about yourself, and this is part of your prayer. I pray that you would always understand that you are actually God's treasured possession. What is it that you can give to God? What is it that God most wants from you? What is it that He sees you as? He sees you as His treasured possession, if you're in Christ. It's like God saying, you know what I'm going to, my inheritance is? My inheritance is this, you. You're what I'm going to put on my trophy case. You are. I'm outrageously, radically in love with you because if you want to know your value, just look at the outrageous, radical price, costly price I paid on the cross when my son poured out his life for your sin. You are my prized possession. I absolutely look upon you with incredible worth and value. You are the world to me. I'm crazy about you. I was talking to someone this week, and he said that he's been in a conversation with a 46-year-old, very substantial individual in the Boston community, very well-connected. He's been in conversation with him about what it means to cross the line of faith and become a Christ follower. And this individual has been really reluctant. He's been coming. He likes everything that they're doing at the particular church, likes the guy, likes everything that's happening. But in the course of the conversation, every time it gets down to, are you ready to you know, say yes to Christ and receive all of his grace and love? forgiveness. The guy always says the same thing. I just don't know that I want to become that. And so I said to my friend, why don't you ask him what he thinks becoming a Christian really is? What he thinks that means? If you say yes to Jesus, what does that mean for you? And I think a lot of times we think giving my life to Christ means that I now and putting myself in this very restrictive lifestyle of do's and don'ts. When in fact, if we read this right here, he's saying I want you to know that God looks upon you with this incredible 
impassioned love and says, you belong to me. You're mine. And I treasure you. I want you to know that. Why is it so important for us to know? Because every day we hear voices, we bump into challenges, we get knocked down, and he's saying, no, you belong to me. You're my treasured possession. Let me put that in a phrase. He prays that you might know God's costly love is what gives your life value. You would never, ever forget that. God's greatest desire for your life is that you would just enjoy Him and bask in His love and His grace and be in this relationship with Him. He wants you to know that that's where your great worth and value comes from. Now let's look at this last request because I think this is probably the one that he elaborates on the most. Let's look at it. I want you to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. Now, he stacks up some words here, and I don't ordinarily do this, but because it's, it's, it's so incredible, string of words that he puts together, I just want to walk through them with you. He says, watch this, are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? Okay, great. Here's what's at work in you right now. Here's what's at work in you right now. And look at this string of words. Now, put them up on the screen, one at a time. Incomparably. What that means, it's a word... Hooper baleo, and it's a word from which we get our word hyperbole. It means exaggerated. He's saying this power of, that's at work in you right now is so huge beyond scope, it would seem like it's exaggerated. So huge that it, 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 it can't be true. He says incomparably great, and the word for great there is the word Megathos, from which we get our word, of course, mega. And it's a word that means it's uber-sized. Uber-sized. And then the word that we're probably most familiar with, power, dunamis, from which we get our word dynamic and dynamite. What is dynamite and a dynamic? It's so forceful that it removes anything that's in the way. So you have this megaton dynamite at work within you that is so huge that it, it seems like it can't be true. But then there's another word, and that's the word energeia. He exerted, and the word energeia means it isn't just a power that's in a reservoir. It's a power that is already being unleashed in and through your life. It's already being unleashed. But not just an energy that's being exerted, but it is a power, kratos, which means it is so overwhelming that nothing can push back against it. Nothing can put back against it. And then the final word is ixus, which means strength, which means it can't be depleted. It's sustainable. Now, you see all of those words that he kind of piles on one another? Take this to the heart, okay? What's at work within you if Christ is in your life and in mine? This power. 
at work in you. That is so huge it seems exaggerated. That it is so great in terms of its force that it blows everything out of the way that's in the way. That it is being unleashed in you right now. Nothing can stop it and it will never ever be depleted. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, that power is at work in you right now. Several years ago, I heard one of the more seasoned pastors these days, a man by the name of Charles Stanley. He's 80 years old. Still the pastor of First Baptist Church of Atlanta. His son is more well-known these days, Andy. But he put this together in a statement that I wrote on my pages of my Bible 30 years ago, and I haven't forgotten it. And here's what it says. Putting all these words together, God's supernatural ability in action, which is mighty in force, so powerful, nothing is able to resist it, conquering every single foe. That's the power. If you're in Christ, that power is at work in and through you. And he prays, I pray that you would know that to the fullest extent. I would put it in a phrase this way, that you would know God's creative capacity to respond on your behalf is without measure. There's no limits to it. None whatsoever. So the next time you and I start praying, let's say we've got a situation in our life, we can't see our way through and we're stuck and we're just not for sure God's going to respond to it. And we've kind of kind of given up a little bit of sense of hope. Begin to pray. God, I pray that I might know, taking Scripture here, let it shape your prayer, I might know your power at work in me as it will be unleashed on this particular situation. You see the difference it makes in your prayer? It's not about you asking God to do anything. It's about His power being unleashed in that given situation. Whether it be an addiction that needs to be overcome, a relationship that needs to be restored, sins that need to be forgiven, guidance that needs to be provided, all of this comes out of this life-altering prayer. Put it together. God, fill me with the sense that your plans and purposes for my life will not be up for grabs, that it will be carried out because of your sovereign providential hand. Keep me reminded of the fact that you sing over me, that you take great delight in me, that my worth is based upon who you say I am. How can I know how worthy I am to you? I just need to look at the cross and help me to know how that your power at work in me right now is so absolutely superior to anything that I'm going to come up against that once it's unleashed, I can expect you to be at work on my behalf. You see the difference a prayer like that can mean in your life and mine as we apply it to the various dynamics of our life? Now, there's an Old Testament prayer. It's very simple. Take a look at it up on the screen, and then I want to kind of wrap things up here very quickly. Here's, a, here's an invitation. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. That word call there 
It's not a general sense, you know, just throw up a prayer anytime you want. It's a commanding invitation that says, whatever specifically is moving in on your life that you're overwhelmed with that insurmountable situation, call, cry out of the overflow of a desperate and fully surrendered heart. And I will promise here, covenant relationship, I will answer. And I will show you great and mighty things which you don't know. Here's what, here's, here's the beautiful thing about it. When we call out in the manner in which we've talked about this morning, God says, I'll show you things you could never come up with on your own. You could never figure out on your own. That's the beauty and power of prayer. So all of a sudden, the prayer dynamic changes. Changes completely. Six years ago, this coming fall, my wife was diagnosed with a rare kind of lymphoma called double-hit lymphoma. One in five people survive. And when we began that whole process of going through massive doses of chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant over a period of 12 months, knowing full well that only one in five survive, what do you think our prayer life was like? And it was very easy for us many times to want to just pray for God to heal her. And it wasn't that we didn't want Him to. But many times what we would find ourselves praying was, God, you're so perfect in all your ways. And we would take Scripture and we would pray it back to God. And we'd ask God to prepare our heart for what He knew was ahead because we knew His plan was perfect and that His plan would be carried out in our lives. Gail is one of the, she's the one in five to survive. And we learned so many things along the way about prayer. To pray in that particular manner and way. Here's the bottom line. You and I can keep on praying like we're praying without much hope. Putting our agenda together and saying, God, this is what I want you to do. Or we can begin to pray a life-altering prayer. That all of a sudden, prayer becomes a dynamic that we, we don't do because it's part of our discipline. We do because it's all a part of our growing dynamic relationship with a God who we know longs to respond to the desperate and fully surrendered cries of our heart. So I would encourage you to start taking Scripture, to read it, and then pray it back, shape it into a prayer. And I want to show you how to do that this morning based upon what we've just read. And I'm going to invite you to actually pray it along with me. You're going to see it up on the screen, and we're going to make our way through it this morning. So let's take a look at it. A life-altering prayer. Let's look at it, and you pray it along with me. We'll pray it paragraph by paragraph, all right? You ready? Let's pray it together. Lord God, out loud, you just say it with me. Out, just read it with me, all right? Lord God, I have not stopped giving thanks to you for calling me to a love relationship with you. 
I have faith in Christ Jesus and love in my heart for all of God's people. Thank you for each life you have given me the privilege of pointing to you. Each person I am able to teach or challenge or encourage. Give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so I may know you better and live strong in you. I pray that the eyes of my heart will be opened so that the image of who God created me to be in Christ will be etched and developed deep in the core of my being. May I be consumed with the hope to which I have been called. May I be so infiltrated by the reality of God's promises that I will never again settle for empty, stale, or aimless living. May I come to understand not only who I am in Christ, but how Christ Himself sees me as His treasured possession, a precious jewel, the very one who He suffered and died for to reconcile back to Himself. May I know that I'm no longer under the tyranny of sin, nor of the power of Satan, no longer to be spellbound by the enchantments of this world, are imprisoned by the fads and labels of this present age. May I live in the power of your might with the same dynamic force you exercised to shatter the dominion of sin and death, raising Christ from the grave. Thank you, Lord God, that you intercede for me at the right hand of the Father. Show me your purpose, your will for my life. Give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation as it relates to your calling on my life. I surrender my heart to you freely, joyfully, and without reserve today. I pray this in your name. Amen. That's a prayer shaped by what we just studied this morning. Learn to do that. Now, here's the big caveat. You can't pray this prayer unless you're in Christ. If Christ is in you, you can pray this. You see, if you're a Christ follower, you see one of the great privileges and benefits of what it means to have Christ in your life. Now, as we close, I want to call your attention to something that I want to encourage you to do over the next several days between now and Easter. Ryan mentioned and alluded to the fact that we're living in some crazy days. Just a week ago, we saw scenes and heard the story of 21 Coptic Christians and the martyr's end of their life. Would you look up on the screen and think of this as part of your prayer life over the next 30 to 40 days. Watch. Sobering. But as you move through this season of Lent, as you prepare for, to celebrate the resurrection, will you make it part of your prayer to lift up the persecuted church around the world? And lift them up in such a way that what Satan meant for harm, God will use in a triumphant way for evil, just as we sang earlier this morning. I want us to pray together for them and with you. Father, we find our hearts moved, hopefully, to the point that we will not uh, soon forget what took place uh, a little over a week ago in another faraway place from the world, but brought right into our very real world. We thank you that these 21 
profess their faith in Christ in such a living way that even in death they triumphed. We would pray that in these ensuing weeks and months, there would be story after story of people seeing the power of your life in them and in others, that many thousands would come to know Christ and that the church, the persecuted church, would be comforted and that those would come to hear the cry of their voice, would come to their aid and come to their rescue, as you would call us to do. Thank you for the witness of this church, for Charles River, that stands so bright a light in Roslindale and beyond. And may every week as they come, week after week, and every week as they walk on the streets and talk to the people next to them, their neighbors and conversations in the places where they are, may they live out the hope of their calling. May you be so powerfully present in their life that people will be attracted to you, to your love and to your grace. We pray one day that this room would be filled with people who have come to know you through the witness of this church because it's so life-giving, because it's all done in Jesus' name. Thank you for what you're going to do, what you have done, all because of the promise we have in our living, resurrected Savior. Amen.